building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. So Jeff Myers, um, you know, a lot of stuff we do on this show is about thinking about worldview. How do we get involved? I think one of the reasons why men are checking out of church is because they don't see a point and that we don't understand how to think. And we're, we're taught constantly to have this sort of lukewarm, um, milly-mally view of the gospel. You've got this amazing worldview academy, basically, that teaches people what to think. And, and I want to have you on a lot because you and I are good friends. <laughs> yeah. And we talk a lot. Yeah. You have brilliant things to say. Today, we're going to talk about Marxism in America, which is so incredibly important because, you know, I get told as promise keepers all the time, well, you can't be political. What does that right. mean exactly? Right. So so the, the million and a half babies a year that we slaughter, we don't talk about that because it's political. Um, but that's an easy one. I mean, people get on board. But we start talking about Marxism, about taxes, about shouldn't we all just help the poor? Um, I mean, why sh- wasn't the first century Christian church, weren't they all communists, right? And so time. I'm looking forward to this conversation because you always sharpen me dramatically, but I want our audience to be able to hear, um, yes, there are times when you absolutely must be political. If you were living in the Soviet Union, would you not stand up for scripture while they're murdering Christians, right? So um, I really can't wait to have the conversation with you. So just kind of start off, tell us about Summit. And then tell us why we should be involved in politics when it comes to fighting Marxism in this country. Well, Summit Ministries is right here in Colorado Springs, right on the other side of town from from where you are. In Manitou. You're in in the cool part. In Manitou Springs, yes. Yeah, the New York Times Travel Reviewer described Manitou Springs as a hippie Mayberry. Two-word review. That is exactly what it is. Very hippie, very friendly. But in the middle of that town, this ministry has existed since 1962. And I've had the privilege of being the CEO now for 10 years. We're focused on equipping and supporting the rising generation to embrace God's truth and to champion a biblical worldview. I attended the program myself when I was a young adult. Say that again, because it's really key. It was a mouthful. It's a lot. But when you talk about teaching a young person to champion a biblical worldview, that's a big deal. Champion a, cha- when I say champion a biblical worldview, what I mean is Jesus is your Savior, But he is not just for your personal spiritual development, that Jesus came to bring the gospel, the truth of God, reality, to every place on the planet in every way at all times. So that's the robust aspect of the faith that so many people miss. I have a lot of young, most of the young adults I work with, and we, this year, we will be working with about 65,000 Young people. 65,000. 65, How many of those are virtual? A um, couple hundred are virtual, about 1,500 or so in in-person extended programs. Our core program is two weeks long. We also have a three-month-long program. But most of them are through curriculum courses, Christian schools, homeschools, that kind of a thing. But your campus that kind is of a pretty thing. cool. I mean, the campus is really cool. It's this antique hotel. Anybody who's been to Manitou Springs knows there's this really mysterious stone staircase right in the middle of town. You go up that staircase, that summit right there. It's So it's hidden off the main street. It's in an antique hotel called the Grandview Hotel that has been there since the 1880s. So students will come from all over the world. 
They'll be there with us for two weeks. We bring in top Christian thought leaders. And so you top really Christian do. apologists, theologians, economists, philosophers. We want these students to know that a biblical worldview isn't just for their personal spiritual development, but it has something to say and do in theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, history, law, every single thing that they will be studying when they go to the university. And a big part of you doing this is to prepare them for college or to prepare them to offset what they're already learning in college. So these kids are basically what, what ages? Well, they're 16 to 25. So most of them have just graduated high school. They're on their way to the university. A lot of them, frankly, are asking, why should I continue in my faith? That was me growing up. That was me in Sunday school. That was me going to youth group. That was me going to camp and to winter retreat. But why should I continue? Because a lot of young adults, and I think a lot of, a lot of men feel this as well. Okay, if this is just about how I feel about Jesus then that's really cool, but that's not going to take me more than an hour a week. And the rest of the time, I will live according to what I think is true for myself. We're now at a tipping point in our culture where more than half of Americans believe that truth is up to the individual. Whatever you decide for yourself is what is true. So that's why people talk about, I speak my truth, right? They don't say any longer, I, I, I'm speaking the truth as I understand it. They just say, no, this is my truth. I have my own reality. So a lot of young adults are in this situation and they're asking, why should I continue? So we, we want to make a strong case for them. And we come right out and say it. We want Jesus to be your savior and your Lord. We also want you to understand that Jesus speaks to everything. As the Anglican theologian, John Stott put it, Christ is at the center. All else is circumference. So if Christ is at the center of your life, he is also at the center of all of reality. And if Christ is the center of reality, then there's nothing that's off limits for the discussion from a biblical worldview. Mm. All right. So that, that means Marxism's not <laughs> so, off limits. So we get to talk about even economics. Isn't that strange? Our, our economics is structured. Well, isn't that at the, <clears throat> it really at the center of Marxism? Yes. So a, a Christian worldview says that theology is at the center. That what you believe about God will determine what you believe about everything else. A Marxist worldview, and we can get into as many of the particulars as you want, a Marxist worldview says economics is at the center of all of reality. That the organizing principle of all of reality is the kind of economic system you have. So Karl Marx said, we came from feudalism to capitalism. We will inevitably move from capitalism to socialism from socialism to communism, this is historical, this is, you can't change this. Have you ever heard a politician say, you're on the wrong side of history? Right. Right? So Karl Marx said, there is a dialectic, there, there is a tension, and what you have to do in order to win, and he was all about winning, what you have to do is take all of the shades of different ideas and put them into two camps and make them fight each other. So it has to be a fight. That's how history advances. He called it dialectical materialism, but it, it has to be a fight. So it has to be the rich versus the poor, the employers versus the employees, white people versus black people, 
straight people versus gay people, whatever it is, there are no shades of meaning. You just simplify everything into two opposing ideas, make them fight. The bloodier the fight, the better, because that's what brings about revolution. So, I mean, you're explaining to me what I see on the news every night. On the news, <laughs> yeah, it right. seems like every story. In fact, it was just uh, this gal uh, uh, that got murdered and, and they found her body in Wyoming, Gabby, whatever. Um, and the, the one host on MSNBC that said, called this white, missing white girl syndrome, as if anything about that had to do with race. But it seems like everything, all the propaganda we're getting on COVID, on um, Afghanistan, on whatever, everything's about this story or that story. And it seems like right now, no matter what it is, a girl gets murdered in Wyoming, it's about race. So that's what you're, you're talking about. This is really that Marxism root. Let me let me play the the teenage kid, um, so that people listening to this can sort of pick up on how do I take from the truth from Jeff yeah. and and get. So, I mean, Jesus wants us to help the poor, Jeff. So, isn't capitalism evil? Shouldn't we take money from those people and then give it to all the poor people? Mm. Why why isn't that biblical? Mm. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you how we approach it at Summit, because that, that comes up all of the time. And a student will say, oh, well, Acts chapter 2, the believers sold everything and held it in common. Common, communism, you know, that's <laughs> a, and, and I, I don't mean to make fun of them. I certainly don't. I take everything that they say seriously, but I point out to them that they sold all of their belongings. That means they owned things. But they decided, I would rather this person have help than that I have a sofa. So I will sell my sofa, but I choose to do it. It is my private property. Well, once you realize, okay, wait a second, I think I've been misled about even how this passage works. Then you can go all the way back to scripture, all the way to Genesis. Start off with this. The Marxist worldview says everything is about matter. There's no God. There's no Jesus. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no heaven. There's no hell. You cannot be a Marxist without being an atheist first. Karl Marx believed that. He believed that you could recruit theologians to come into a Marxist worldview, but only because they will eventually become atheists. So you have to be a materialist. Only the material world exists. If only the material world exists, there's only so much to go around. Now, you've had business experience. You know that wealth gets created. You can create new wealth by having new ideas, not according to the Marxists. According to the Marxists, the material world is all there is. And so if we don't share it equally, then somebody stole something. Any person who has more than anybody else has it because they stole it. That's the only possible explanation okay, so what from the Marxist saying worldview. Is there's a scarcity mentality or a zero-sum game mentality where there's only so much to go around. So if, the more you have, the less there is for me. That's right. Yeah. That's the only way it can be, that there's no other possible way to explain it. Okay, so a young person who says, we're supposed to give to the poor, Jesus wants us to care about the poor, is telling the truth. Jesus spoke about the poor. Jesus spoke about justice. All of Scripture talks about justice. But a Marxist worldview doesn't really care about justice. What it wants is to take you away from the idea that there is any God who cares about anything at all, there is only a material world. And if everybody's going to share it equally, then we have to bust down the rich 
so that other people can have more. The idea that you could come up with an idea that would generate something brand new. I give them the example of Uber. You know, Uber would cost about a million dollars for software developers to develop it. When I last checked, Uber has a $68 billion market cap. Now, if you, if you, $68 billion is a lot of, that's a lot of money, right? Take Ford Motor Company, Fiat, Chrysler, General Motors, put them all together. They together don't have a $68 billion market cap. And Uber doesn't own a single vehicle, except maybe their corporate jet and a, and a couple of town cars. They don't own anything. They just have organized a way for people to take what they already have, their assets, their property that they own and control and are to be stewards of, and use it in a way that benefits them. And they have created new wealth. That kind of thing can't be explained by a Marxist worldview. It's not possible under a Marxist worldview. And anybody who thinks big like that has to be knocked down somehow because you, it has to be simplified into one side versus the other. So should we give to the poor? We absolutely should. We should be generous. We should have generous hearts. We should have open hands. But when somebody says, I'm going to be generous to the poor by making you give, they're not really giving. They're actually taking. They developed a confiscatory approach to life. So what you what you just emphasized then is that Christianity is about choice. Marxism is about lack of choice. Christianity right. says, I will decide to give my money that I earned to the poor. Marxism says, I will decide that we're going to give Ken Harrison's money to the poor First, we're going to give right. it to all my friends, and we're going to go through all the people who have paid me off, and then we're going to give the pennies that are left uh, over. Well, that's yeah, that's of course it's it's all very cynical when it comes when it comes back to it. But what they would say is Ken didn't doesn't really have money. Ken just stole somebody else's money because there's only so much to go around. So if we're taking it back from Ken, we're not doing anything bad to Ken. We're actually doing something good for everybody else. Uh, I want to get us back to critical race theory because we're seeing the roots of critical yeah. race theory and Marxism mm -hmm. in a bit. But one of the things you talked about then is that if the idea of communism or socialism is to divide up everything equally, who's the one who's overseeing that it's divided up equally? And that's what we've seen because we have a hundred years of history of communism. And in, those, in the case, always the ruling class has more than everybody else. So it never practically works out because when we don't understand the fallen nature of man, we don't understand greed. And when there's greed and the ability to have truth be relative, then we begin to get, well, I'm more important than Jeff. So everything equal, but, but I should have more than Jeff because I'm more important than him. And we get into, of course, we can get into the race thing from there. A biblical worldview can explain why Marxism has failed every time it has been tried. No other worldview can really explain that. But it comes back to human nature. Lord Acton said power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. If, uh, let's say there are several routes to power. Let's say somebody just really wants to control a lot of things. Well, in a free market system, they can control their business. They can go buy a yacht. They can buy a Gulfstream 6. I don't care. It doesn't affect me at all. In a Marxist system, the only route to power is political. So everything is automatically political. And it's funny that Marxists end up accusing all of their opponents of only being political. Right. 
but it's Marxism that has made everything political. It's projection. You is. get right, but you know, and, and listen, Bernie Sanders would always talk about uh, it's rigged and crony capitalism. He's not wrong about that. There are a lot of people who, instead of trying to increase their shareholder value by coming up with new products, go to the government and lobby them to get laws passed that favor their industry. Right. right? So they're misusing the power of government. Bernie Sanders was not wrong when he pointed that out. He wasn't the only one who pointed it out, but he wasn't wrong when he said that. The idea of government in a free market system is that it sort of serves as a traffic cop, which you would need anyway. Even if people had no sin, you would still have traffic cops because you have to get the traffic flowing in order for everybody to be able to get to their destination. It's a perfectly legitimate role for government. But in the Marxist view, the government becomes the controller of everything, even the decisions you make. Like, Ken, the average American makes 10,000 to 20,000 decisions a day. Really? You take that, uh, big ones, little ones, you take that times 350 million people in this country, you have quadrillions of decisions. The Marxist worldview says, we will make all of those economic decisions on your behalf. The Marxist might say, Cultural Marxism will say, look at the cereal aisle. That's disgusting that there are 300 different brands of cereal. It's so wasteful when other people in other countries have nothing. You see what they've done? They've said that we have all of this, and as a result, other people have nothing. Uh, you see? So it's tied together. So we're going to have five kinds of cereal. We will make the choices for Which you. didn't help the other people at all. Never helps the others. It just took away. It just takes away the choices from the people who are the producers. And the crazy thing was Karl Marx understood all of this. In fact, he said, and Lenin following him, we have to let the capitalists build everything up so that we have something to confiscate. <laughs> he actually really? said that, yes. And, and, and you remember the whole idea of glasnost, perestroika? Do you remember that from when you... Oh. <laughs> Dude, I have, I have my degree is in English literature. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. All right. Late 1980s, uh, communism is falling apart in Eastern Europe. And they say, well, we, it's, we're going to have a period of glasnost. Well, what do they mean by that? From a Marxist worldview, they say, yeah, we kind of, we need some, we need an infusion of capital so we have more to take over. Nice. So we're going to loosen all of the restrictions and let the capitalists build things so up again. So they thought they would come back and take over. They again. thought they would come back and take it over. And that's why China, China's not capitalist. China is in this period of the communist overlords letting the businesses grow so they can gain more and more control over them through time. So this isn't anything we need to worry about in America, though, right? I mean, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, so socialism could yeah. never take root here. Right. We could never have a congressperson <laughs> you could, like AOC, right? You would, never, you would never think that it could. And it's crazy. Anybody who lived through the Cold War cannot imagine this. But the young adults I'm working with, Ken, 70% of them say they would vote for a socialist to be president of the United Dude. States. 70%. Now, is this because they don't understand socialism? When they hear socialism, what they hear is... I get a guaranteed minimum wage, my college loans are forgiven, and um, that's basically it. So they haven't been taught how to think. They haven't been taught the history of America. They certainly haven't been taught the history of Central and Eastern no, Europe. They're, they're, well, they're getting used by socialists who want to move us toward communism, and they know they have to get votes somehow, right? So, hey, how would you like to go to college for free? 
And listen, if you had to pay $50,000 a year to go to college and you've got $200,000 in student loan debt and people said, no, it's fine. It's worth it because when you get out, you'll get a great job. And now you're working as a barista. You're probably pretty ticked off. You're probably pretty disillusioned. It would be very easy for somebody to come in and manipulate you and say, see, if only you will let the socialists win, we'll fix all of this for you. So just because sense. somebody points out a problem does not mean their solution is the is the right one, mm. right? And that's the kind of discernment that we're trying to get these students to develop. You know, it's interesting. I was just talking to someone this morning about a, a well-known pastor with whom I'm really close. And he said to me, well, there, you know, do you know about the situation? I said, well, yeah, he's a very close friend. I've been walking through the, him from the beginning. And uh, he said, well, I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. And I said, yes, I don't, I don't know anything about that. And then he said to me, well, you know, the, the old cliche, there's three versions of the truth, you know, your version, my version, and, and the real version. I said, that is such a pile of crap. <laughs> right. Right. What you're assuming is that nobody has the truth, right? That it, it's a way for the cowards to not have to try, pick sides. There is truth, yeah. right? I need oxygen. If I stop breathing, I'll be dead in about five minutes, right? right. Um, if I jump off this building... Uh, gravity will pull me to the ground, whether I believe it or not. It's not my truth. No, right. I mean it makes no sense. I mean, if you, if I, if I, if I were to say uh, Martin Luther King was killed in April of ni- nineteen sixty eight, and you were to say, well, that may be true for you, but in my culture, that's not how we how we see it. That's an absurd statement. So yes, w- uh, people do confuse facts and opinions all of the time. Now, this is not to say we can know all of the truth ourselves. Yes. Scripture tells us that we can know the truth. Jesus said, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. That doesn't mean we know the truth exhaustively, but it does mean we know it truly. Okay, think of a map. People don't relate to road maps anymore, but in Colorado, they still relate to topographical maps. If you're in the mountains, you want to have a map, right? Uh, But when when you look at a map, you wouldn't say, well, this map is not a good map because it doesn't describe everything in complete detail. Well, if it did, the map would be as big as the area you're trying to describe. Right. You want it to be simplified, but you want it to be accurate. So uh, what we have in nature is general revelation that God's revealed a lot of truth about himself and about reality to us just through nature, right? If you were to go to the top of the building and jump, you're not going to go up. You're going to go down. Even if you have a strong personal philosophy of upness, you're still going to go down. Uh, But then second, Scripture is special revelation. This is why we need to be in God's Word every day, because God reveals things about Himself and about reality that we can't understand any other way. The founders of America grasped this. They said, you know what? In the history of every country of the world, when one person got in charge, they wrecked it for everybody else. We need to have a separation of powers to try to limit Corruption. Why would they think corruption is a problem? Because they actually believed that humans are fallen. They took that simple principle into account and developed the first real true democratic republic or constitutional republic in the history of the world. Yeah. That us in Switzerland, right? I mean, basically. Well, and we were the, yeah, this was it. I mean, this was it. The really the first. Really, we were before Switzerland. I I would. Yeah. The United States was the first to write out his, England has a constitution, but they never wrote it down. They're like, oh, the constitution is all of the ideas that we have ever had. (laughs) Okay. All right, great. And then when freedom of speech became inconvenient. Oh yeah. We never had that idea. Right. Uh, The United States founders wrote down the constitution 
And then after they passed the Constitution, they wrote down a Bill of Rights, not to protect people from one another, but to protect people from the government. That was the whole point. Why would we need to do that? Because the government doesn't give us our rights. The founders said the purpose of this Constitution is, is to secure the right to life, liberty, and property. From where, the, where does it come from? From God. God gives us those rights. Government helps secure them. So they wrote it all down and said, this is the guideline. And they, they developed it based on the best they could do at the time, based on what they understood of a biblical worldview. If we forget a biblical worldview, how are we ever going to maintain any sort of a society that is a blessing to people? If rights come from God, then where do they come from? They must come from the government. They come from the government. So whoever's in charge of the government then determines what is true. I'm talking to Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries. Um, yeah, I was in Prague with my daughter. Have you been to Prague? No. And Prague is a fascinating place. I mean, it's um, it's built on a river and it's extremely gothic. And so you have these yeah. uh, big, um, massive cathedrals that are black and they pointed things and there's a cool square yeah. there. And uh, I think we were, it must have been, it was 2008 because uh, we were in this big town square and all of a sudden I see them setting up these massive movie screens in the, in the thing. And they have like all these beer vendors. I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, well, tonight's the Euro cup final. I'm like, Oh, who knew, you know, I've been a soccer fan ever since. Cause <laughs> it's the first soccer game I ever watched in my life. It was uh, on the big screen in Italy Prague. and Spain, I think. And, and had no idea they were such amazing athletes. But when you're in Prague, you have all these incredible buildings and, and just the architecture is insane. And you actually look at that and you go, how did they build that? You know? And then off in the distance, there's just massive concrete obscenity. Like it's, I don't know, 300 feet high, probably. Um, and it, and it, it rises up. It's, it's giant concrete. So it comes up like this. And then there's this big thing that goes perpendicular. It's, it's monstrous. And it's, and it's in the skyline when you're in the, the old city where you want to be. And I'm like, what in the world is that thing? I mean... And they basically said that's what the Soviets built when they took over the Czech Republic. Yeah. They built that to show their power. And I thought, boy, if that's not a visual of what communism is compared to capitalism, their idea of building something was this hideous, horrible, awful thing in the landscape of all this gorgeous architecture. Right. It showed the depravity. And then... When you walk down to the river, it actually has a statue that goes on for quite, it's an amazing statue of the miseries of communism that they've built in Prague. And there's a reason why, you know, Poland and Hungary and Romania and Czech Republic are the ones who are really standing firm with the United States on capitalism and, and, and opposing socialism because they lived it. And there are people there who still haven't forgotten the, you know, the murder the lack of freedom, the government telling you who you are, what you can do, where you can be. While the government officials, you know, when they talk about justice and freedom, they're the ones that have all the money. And in a dwindling, dwindling society, like you talked about, they've got to turn to capitalism eventually once there's nothing left. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Eastern Europeans, you saw the book by Rod Dreher, I think, called uh, Live Not By Lies, where he actually went back and interviewed a lot of people who grew up under that system. And saw not only the complete destruction of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of the right to freely assemble, freedom of the right to petition the government for the redress of grievances. Those are just from the first 
amendment to the United States Constitution. But they saw the destruction of the human will, the, the, destroying the very idea that you can have a thought that might be different from what the sanctioned thought is of the particular government at that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the whole, that's the whole point. Free, freedom of freedom of religion, freedom of speech, all of those things guaranteed by the United States Constitution are all seen from a Marxist worldview as tools that the powerful use to keep themselves in power and to keep everybody else impoverished. So we are now actually in a place where the majority of Americans, I think it was 58%, think that the First Amendment of the Constitution needs to be revised or abolished. Are you kidding? 50, I think it was 58%. So let, let's put some practicality to this now. Um, the problem we end up in is we begin to talk about ideas and worldview like we're doing. And then people begin to take their own natural prejudices and divide them into political parties. Right. Right. And so we know that the Democrat Party is pushing socialism. The, the, the fringes are pushing them into it. Very we, many are. I'm, I don't know if – I don't think most everyday uh, people in the Democratic Party do that. But they absolutely, uh, as a party, have given the platform, the national platform, to people who push these ideas. Yeah. Them, right? mm -hmm. um, and, and we know the Republicans are the ones saying they fight it. But you and I have been around long enough. We know enough people to know that really they're not fighting it in many ways. And so what happens is you start having conversations like this and people think, yeah, I got to vote Republican. But that isn't really necessarily true. It's just that the Republican Party hasn't been taken over by socialist activists in many ways. So how do we have these conversations with our kids? How do we vote? How do we know how to get involved? What, what do we do? So the common person, they're in their car right now, they're listening to this and they're going, dude, I agree with those two guys. Yeah. And I see, I hear... Uh, Alicia Cortez or whatever her name is and Iman or, uh, you know, the, whatever the squad. Yeah. Uh, and, and I see these ideas that are, are terrifying, mm -hmm. but what do I do about it? And it seems like every time we vote the Republicans into power, they don't do anything. I mean, the Republicans were totally in power in 2016. They had the, the presidency, both houses, and they didn't do a darn thing except for argue with each other. So what do we as a common person do? How do we teach our kids? How do we get involved? Yeah, well, you, you start by recognizing that God is God, government is not God. As Chuck Colson used to say, salvation does not arrive on Air Force One. Mm -hmm. So we start with that realization that what is the role of the church? The church helps the state be the state. So at Summit Ministries, I'm always telling our team, we get political because a biblical worldview speaks to politics, but we're political, not partisan. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or which party to support, but polis, politics comes from the, a Greek word meaning the rule of a city. Who's in charge of ruling the city? Well, you know, Abraham Lincoln said in the United States, we have government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Romans 13 says we obey our governing authorities. Who would those be? Well, it would be us. It would be us. We are the ones. In order to obey God, we have to participate in the political process, as odious as that sometimes. So that's a statement that's running counter to what a lot of evangelical churches would teach right now. You're, you just said, in order to obey God, we have to be involved, to be involved in the political process. Yes, yes. That's a an amazing statement. It's one that I agree with. How do we do that? So, okay. uh, you know, housewife can't really run for Congress. She's busy. She's raising kids. 
what can she do? Well, a lot of things we can do uh, without ever leaving our homes. Number one, well, I, I, let me let me share how I see this. So I, you always start with principles, then you move from principles to policies, and then policies to personalities. Most people think backwards about that. They start with the personality. Like they might say, I hate Donald Trump, so whatever he's for, I'm against, right? So they have a sort of a whiplash approach. Right. The founders did not do that. They started with principles. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Because of those principles, we will establish policies. We will have a legislature, and it will look like this. We will have an executive branch. It will look like this. Have a judicial branch. It will look like this. Then they they find that once they had all of that established, then they fought each other like cats. Fist right? fights sometimes. They literally did. fist fights. They literally there were beatdowns in Congress. But they, if they had started with personalities, they would never have arrived at a rational policy and they could never have been, been, been based on principles. So from your home, you read the Constitution of the United States. Wow. You read the Declaration of Independence. If you want to take a little bit more time, turn off the television, turn off your phone, turn off all social media, read the Federalist Papers. Okay, now you're gone crazy. Because I've tried <laughs> reading those things, man. Listen, one of my graduates at uh, Summit Ministries just got a law passed in the state of South Carolina that requires all students attending publicly funded universities in the state of South Carolina to take a class in which they read the Constitution, read the Declaration of Independence, that's, and that's read nice. the Federalist Papers. So 21,000 students this fall in South Carolina are doing that's that. That's awesome. If that could only happen in 49 other states, this would be a game changer. I just say to people who listen to this, the Federalist Papers, so again, English lit grad, I had to read the Federalist Papers. They were newspaper articles. So they were written to the common person day in the newspaper back in the day. Yeah. And when you actually read those and you see how hard they are to read, you start to realize how much smarter and better educated people were in the 1780s than they are today. They were invested. Yeah, they didn't just think other people would do it for them. Yes. So you you get you inform yourself. It does make you invested when there are people trying to kill you. When you when you actually make the decision, we're going to declare independence, and if we lose this war, which we probably will, we're all going to get hung. The most powerful army and the most powerful navy the world has ever known is sailing toward us right now. The world's ever known, really. That, right. That was that was the British. Yeah. Wow. The British. It was that powerful. The British army, the British navy. They're sailing toward us right now. Uh, we had better be sure. They already own the rest of the world, pretty much. Yeah. And no one could shake them off. Right. Now they're coming to Now the Federalist right Papers came after that. They right. came after but the revolution. Those people but, had been so invested yes. with their lives, their livelihoods, that now, well, gosh, now that we're making our own government, we better really pay yeah. attention. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the how the, what, where and how they're written. And they're written to the common person. And every day, people would run out and buy the newspaper any newspaper, so that they could read the latest issue of the Federalist Papers to understand the government that they were going to be voting on. I just want to put that out there for people to understand yeah, yeah. how important it is to understand the Federalist Papers. If you want to be a leader, you've got to be a reader. It's one of our key mottos at Summit. Got to be a reader. You can't just do it through social media. You can't just do it through articles that people share with you on Facebook. You've got to actually read real stuff. Does this Fifty Shades of Grey count? So. <laughs> <laughs> so a reader of good stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. So if, if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a reader. And if you want to be a good leader, you have to be a, a reader of leaders. You've got to find really good material. And there are lots of great books out there 
Uh, I'm reading books by Mark David Hall, who's a who writes on American history. Uh, Thomas Kidd from Baylor University writes on American history. A lot of my friends have told me they really like uh, David Barton and his his work as well. They, but, they've tried to discredit him, and it's garbage. Just um, people who, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, he he really came under a withering attack, but. You know, it's a free country. Read the books and see if you agree with the tax or whether you think he's making some good Oz points. Guinness has a great new book he just sent me. Uh, Oz Guinness would be a great resource. Uh, Rob you Dreyer, know, you mentioned. Rod Dreyer. By the way, people who, who uh, heard that, Live Not By Lies, he was on this podcast. So if you want to go back and find the interview I did with Rod, uh, very interesting, great book um, about the, the Soviet Union. Well, you've got it. You've got to read. Second of all, you have to actually talk with people about these issues. At Summit, we tell students, you always start by asking questions. What do you mean by that? Define your terms. How do you know that's true? What is your source? What happens if you're wrong? Asking key questions mm -hmm. of other people and di dialoguing with them about it. Those are the first two steps. And then the third step is to be informed about the people who are actually representing you right now. A lot of people say, well, I, I know who's president of the United States, but you might not know who your senators are. You might not know who your members of Congress are. You probably don't know who your state legislators are. You almost certainly don't know who's on your city council or on your school board. These meetings are open to the public. We have no excuse for bad policies being passed in our cities when we could get 10 friends and go down there and listen and make comments and get in touch with these people. So we really don't have an excuse. And I, I don't think God gives us any out. I don't, I don't, I, I really, I really don't see how you could look at scripture and say, political involvement in the American context is obedience to God. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan. Utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Struggling to balance work and time with your kids? Parenting teenagers? What about having tough conversations about tough issues? Promise Keepers is launching a 14-day fatherhood challenge just for you. It all starts with a one-hour kickoff event live on Facebook and YouTube. Then join us on the Promise Keepers app for 14 days of encouragement and practical application. Join with other like-minded brothers for sharpening conversations and discussions that will take your fatherhood to the next level. Don't delay. Register today at promisekeepers.org fatherhood. That's promisekeepers.org fatherhood. I was telling you we were having lunch. I live in 
one of the most conservative counties in America. Very, very conservative, moral, Christian county. Um, our school board was taken over in 2016 by abject socialists, godless, horrible, immoral people. Um, and I remember that election because I was sitting there with my wife voting by mail. And for school board, it had five names and five names. And it had no R's or D's. Right. You had no way of knowing who they were. So we Googled them. We couldn't find anything on any of the people. Yeah. There was no information or data to be had. You had no idea who to vote for. So I don't think we voted at all for that because I didn't want to check the wrong box. So turns out these horrible people took over, went, took over the school board and started to put together some awful stuff um, for our children. That garnered people's attention and they were thrown off the board in 2018. And now we're back to having a, a, a board that's mostly Christian people. But this is happening all over. And people would be horrified and shocked to know what's being taught in their schools, what's in the libraries of their junior high school kids. Uh, there was an article yesterday about a woman who was reading a, uh, a book that was in her kids' public school, and it was talking about sodomy. Um, junior high kids committing sodomy out behind the, the movie theater. Horrific stuff. Um, thank the Lord. In her case, the school board voted to get rid of the book. What At the very base level, the education of our children... And you're now inheriting these kids. And I want to flip just a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. You've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. You're dealing with a very special segment. Of you're not dealing with the usual kids. You're dealing with kids who either really want a Christian worldview or their parents really want them to have one. Then they end up in front of you. But have you seen a change in the 10 years of the kids you're getting of what they think they know when they show up? I. It, it's easier if I look back. 20 years because we were dealing with a completely different generation. Now, what were you doing 20 years I, ago? You weren't running Summit. I wasn't running Summit. I was a professor, had a couple of businesses where I did leadership training and consulting. But when I look back 20 years ago, uh, the students would argue with me a lot more. Really? Yes. They would argue with me. They would say, well, this is wrong or that's wrong or, or whatever. It, but there was, there was real tension. If you talked about how to have a biblical sexual ethic, they would come up and say, but how far is too far, right? They would oh, always yeah. have those kinds of points. The students today, they just sort of sit there. They're like, hmm, that's an interesting truth that you have, wow. right? So they are not even arguing for the most part with us. So we've switched it around instead of trying to create the tension and the dialogue, we'd have Q&A sessions. You can ask whatever question you want. And they are asking really profound questions from a place of anxiety and depression. Really? That's really, that's, that's really it. Yeah. What, what, which makes perfect sense from a biblical worldview. If there is such a thing as truth and you deny that it exists... It's like trying to navigate through the wilderness, just trying to make the little red needle on the compass always point toward you. <laughs> You'll always be lost. Mm -hmm. When you're always lost, you're always anxious. If you're always anxious, then you begin to spiral and begin to wonder, is there really any point to life? So we start with, we start with that. What does it mean when Jesus says that he will give you life and life to the full. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of a life? Mm. Not just to know the truth, but the truth that will actually set you free. Because there are a lot of things that we're in bondage to. 
The children of Israel refused to go into the promised land, even though God had promised it, because they said there are giants in the land. What are the giants for us? I think anxiety and depression could be giants. I think the idea of speak your truth rather than know the truth that will set you free is a giant. And I think we need to be moving into those areas. So there is not a single topic that we won't talk about at Summit. Gender identity, a lot of people, there's sort of a social contagion right now of everybody believing that their gender, what they understand is their gender, is their core identity of who they are as a human being. When students come to Summit, we have a guy who used to be heavily involved in, in the gay movement, actually got in the gay party lifestyle, ended up going to prison because he was providing drugs to these parties, came to faith in Christ, and now comes to speak to the students. And he says, your identity is in Christ. That's your core identity, not your sexuality. You know what happens? It sets them free. I had a student, I asked him, you know, how he was doing. And he said, well, you know, when I came Summit last year, some actually come two times in a row to this two-week program. When I came last year, I was totally addicted to porn, he said. And I asked him, well, how are you doing now? He said, well, thanks to, you know, my training at Summit, getting some good accountability, getting a good counselor, I've been free from porn, he said, for six months. And I said, what's that been like for you? We're sitting at a picnic table over in Manitou Springs at the summit. His br he had brought a buddy with him to summit. That guy sitting right next to him, listening in on this whole conversation. I said, what's that like for you? And he said, I am, I have been able to sleep all the way through the night for the first time in years. Really? So porn was making it so he couldn't sleep. Was that he couldn't anxiety? sleep. He was waking up in the middle of the night to look at porn. Oh, he could never, he could never, he had no rest. You know, when Jesus said, my yoke is easy, come to me, you'll have rest for your souls. He's actually going back all the way to Jeremiah, something that Jeremiah said, that this is the way walk in it, God says, and you will have rest for your souls. And people said, we will not walk in it. So the anxiety, the depression, the restlessness, the inability to focus, the inability to see a sense of purpose and direction in life, those are some of the big giants of this generation. But when they find truth through Jesus and it sets them free, it sets them free to rise above all of those things that would set them aside from the unique creation that God has given to them. And they become difference makers. So Jeff, how do we talk to our our kids. I mean, the things that our generation grew up thinking um, it, it sometimes makes it we don't even understand where these kids are coming from because we, we come from an idea of a basic biblical worldview. Whether we're Christians or not, we were all taught a basic biblical worldview. That's why in the United States and, and the Western world, to some extent, people all wait in line, right? Because it, it I mean, the biggest sin you can you can make in America is cutting line, right? Because it's a it's a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. Treat my neighbor as I would. Mm -hmm. um, he was here first, and he gets to go, yeah. and then I go. Yeah. Um, so we we were taught this biblical worldview, but it's it's being torn apart more and more to the point where a lot of people listening is going, I don't even know what the heck my kid's talking about. Mm -hmm. and my kid's screaming at me that I'm a racist. What uh, like what? How do we deal with them? How do we talk to them? How do we get them? I hate to say help as if they were damaged, but they really are damaged. The worldview of that they've been taught by some of these teachers is just awful. Yeah. Well, there's so much. It, it, what makes it feel so overwhelming is that we feel like when our kids 
say something or ask a question that we should immediately have a response because that's the way it happens on social media, right? Watch Ben Shapiro crush the pro-abortionist in 10 seconds, you know, kind of. Thing. <laughs> uh, so we feel like, oh man, I'm really an idiot if I don't have an immediate response. Jesus in the gospels, a friend of mine counted this up, asked 288 questions. Wow. Your friend's got a lot of time. A lot of time. I think he might've gotten a graduate degree for it or something. <laughs> it was some reason he, he did it. 288 questions. Ponder that. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the maker of the universe. He's teaching through asking questions. Teaching through asking questions. That's a really good place to start. Boy, that's good you advice. don't have to know a lot. There's no excuse to not try to grow in our knowledge every day. I think that's part of uh, part of the way we're supposed to do it. It's just like we're supposed to take our 10,000 steps or whatever the amount is that we're supposed to take every day. Why? Because you maintain a certain level of health and everything else is better, or it's at least worse if you don't do it. The same thing is true with our minds. We have to continually cultivate our minds. But when you're in a relationship, you're doing something that is completely natural to biblical truth. Uh, the biblical truth is not just that a mathematical formula gives us truth or that a logical proposition gives us truth. It's truth as a person. It's Jesus. So we start relationally to communicate the truth. If your child says, well, you know, your mom, you're just a racist. Yeah, tell me what that means when you use that term. Mm. Okay, back up a little bit. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Tell me how you got there. What's the story behind that? Where did you get that information? Ask those kinds of things. The powerful thing Jesus knew about questions that I think we often forget in a world that's mostly just directed at one-way messages is that questions actually change people. They change their minds. They change their hearts. When Jesus went to uh, Jericho, the blind man Bartimaeus said, Jesus, heal me. And Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And you can imagine the disciples were like, <laughs> you know, he's blind. Isn't it obvious? Jesus did not assume that the blind man wanted to be well. And we know how that works in our world. There are a lot of people who are sick who don't want to be well because they've wrapped their identity around that Boy, sickness. That's right. When Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? He was changing Bartimaeus's heart and his mind about his circumstances, not just his physical sight, but what the physical sight would mean to him in living a totally different kind of life. So we ask questions. That's, that's how we start. And let me give a different take on that, the same take, but different angle on it. As a guy who was an ex-cop, um, I was an expert witness in cocaine, heroin, and um, marijuana, no, PCP. And then I was an expert witness in the real estate industry. And what I found is that accusations are what ignorant people do to avoid speaking about truth. So if I say, Jeff, you're a racist, and this is what happens on social media because the social media is dominated by fools. What I'm really saying is I don't want to have a conversation, so I'm going to force you to defend yourself. You're a racist. Now you're supposed to stand there and try to tell me what a racist you are. Now I'm in judgment over you. I'm above you. This is what attorneys do to cops on the stand. Didn't you really arrest my client because he was black? Mm. 
uh, no. Well, how do you, well, because I, I was a cop in Compton and everybody was black, you know, I mean, yeah, but it, you must defend yourself to me. So when your 16 year old makes an accusation and you begin defending yourself, you have now put him in authority or her in authority over you. So that's why what you're saying is so brilliant. And I used to have a sign over my desk when I ran a big company that said, ask the right question. Whenever I was with employees, I found the best way to coach was to ask questions. People know the answers inherently of their own. And when they have to give those answers, they then have to own those answers. And so it's brilliant because what you just suggested to people is they're not defending themselves. Jeff, you're a racist. Well, that's an interesting thing for you to say, Ken. Why would you say such a thing like that? Now I'm, oh, now I've got to come up with a reason why I would say such a thing. Now you're back in authority over me. So important for parents, especially parents of parents of college kids because the kid goes off to XYZ state comes back thinking they're brilliant because professor idiot that never did anything in the real world told them so because he read it in a book All right now That's they're right. back <laughs> telling you that you don't know anything it's so important you know you this you that never never defend yourself always return an accusation with a question and you turn the authority wheel back around and now I'm back in authority because you've got to answer the question. If you treat every accusation as a hypothesis that has to be demonstrated to be true rather than as a truth. Isn't that what we do on social media, right? (laughs) The arguments that go back and forth on things because people are accusing each other. They're just a bunch of fools. Yeah. Yeah. Throwing their pearls before swine. Well, and there's actually a lot of data. Uh, way back in the 60s, Albert Morabian did a study where he found that 55% of our communication is through our posture and facial expressions. Really? 38% of our communication is through our tone of voice. Only 7% is through our words. If only 7% is through our words and you're trying to have an argument through text messaging or email or social media... You're tying 93% of the relational potential of that conversation behind your back. That's fascinating. So it's really important. So people are don't, we don't have, we should not be having discussions. I mean, we should have discussions like this, like we're doing right now, not back and forth through social media posts, you know, which promotes passive aggressiveness, Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. And I'm well, less so Instagram, but still. They've all learned how to monetize conflict, to create it on purpose so that they can make more money. And we fall into it as if it's a natural way of reacting to conflict, and it isn't. It's not natural when we're with our kids. It's not natural with our Mm -hmm. friends. It's not even natural with the other adults with whom we might disagree. Okay, so... my producer Brian, we had to cut for a minute because our producer Brian just told us that we've been talking forever and we needed to wrap this <laughs> we were, up. We were supposed to go for 40 minutes and we've gone for an hour. This is what we always do. Yeah. Uh, every time we're together, it's pretty funny. Um, and when our and our wives are here, it's even funner because our wives really add to the conversation. Oh, they are, but they're both hysterically funny and yeah. and uh, we yeah, have all them together. Next time we do this. <laughs> but um, I they wanna, bust us down too much, man. I want to get. I want to close this since we have to, on Summit, because what Summit's doing is unbelievable. And you guys are literally in two weeks, reversing yeah. the brainwashing of an entire generation right. of crap that's been fed into our kids. If I'm listening to this, people who are watching this right now, 
Get your kids into Summit if you can. And you're saying 16 to 25. 16 to 25. How do they do that? Where do they you go? You want to set aside two weeks, go to summit.org and then look for where the programs are. Right now, we've scheduled them for our Manitou Springs location next summer and also at our secondary location, which is Covenant College in Georgia. Look at Mountain Georgia. Now, I know you sell out in Manitou really fast. Do you still have room for next we summer? Do, we do sell out. Um, now, with COVID, we had to move all the programs out of the state of Colorado. Colorado didn't let up its restrictions in time. And we believe that this is so important that we couldn't just cancel it. We had to move. So we did our programs in Arizona, Georgia, South Carolina this last summer. Yes, the Manitou Springs campus is small. It does sell out. You you really want to be signed up for it by February. March would be the absolute latest that you'd want to be signed up for the program for summer of 2022. But that two-week program, as you said, you, you can really see a dramatic change in a young person's life and their understanding of truth, their love for Jesus, even the relational climate that we create with mentoring and small groups. Just heard from a young lady who said, I felt when I came to Summit, I felt seen, she said, as a woman for the first time really? in my life. Because the culture treats women as objects to be used rather than people to be loved. So it's really important. And, and there'll be all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't want to go. If financial reasons are one of those reasons, then reach out to us and let us know because we never want that to be a barrier. The harder barriers are, mom, I don't want to leave home for two weeks. Or mom, I just got home from college. I want to be with my friends for two weeks, that kind of a thing. But to send, uh, sending your kids to Summit can be the most significant thing that you can do for them to open up this next season of life. It's a rite of passage, really. You can think, you can think, you can think biblically, you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I would just say for all of you, those of you who have not been to Manitou Springs, if you want to go there, if you can, it is jaw droppingly, the mountains just rise straight up out of the ground right behind you guys. Yeah. You've got this cool old, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, 1860s hotel. Yeah. Um, I was trying to use a fancy word, but um, it's just it's just an amazing experience. And for me, for my money, the most important time. I mean, they're all important times. But if you got seniors in high school who are going to be going to college, get them in here because they're going to come out with such an incredible training on how to think that when they get to that college and that moron professor starts saying a bunch of crap, um, they're going to be completely prepared. And it's not just about your kid, because now you're, there's going to be somebody in that class that's going to take that professor on. And what you find is, usually if you can think logically, most of these professors fall apart. Because especially in this generation, they're so used to kids sitting there mindlessly swallowing their garbage, or some Christian kid who's not trained raises their hand and says something stupid. Um, but when you get a kid in who's been trained... You can change that whole class. You can start changing that culture. If we get our kids trained and start saying, hey, Professor Johnson, boom, 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 boom. And, and the kids can watch Professor Johnson get red in the face and angry and start screaming accusations because that's all he knows how to do because he can't think. All of a sudden, those kids in that start, classroom start going, he's a liar. 
He's a liar, and I'm being brainwashed. Yeah. So it's so be important the one. for everybody. Just be the one who's willing to stand. Sometimes people will stand with you. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes, Sometimes other people have been so conditioned to be quiet and submit that they're afraid to stand alongside of you. But if you are the one who is willing to stand, then you actually change the trajectory of your life. I want to throw one other thing, too, even though we're way over. You know, my son Hunter went to Wheaton College. He's a wrestler at Wheaton, and Hunter was on the debate team. He's very bright, very well-trained, um, knows how to, to discuss things. And at Wheaton College, uh, people who are listening to this, that's the home of Billy Graham, Jim Elliott, um, he would run into this crap. And he would take these professors on. He would talk, Dad, these students will not stand up. I mean, they won't say a word. I'm going at it with the professor, and they won't even engage. They'll come up to me afterwards. Oh, we agreed with you. That's right. You know? But I was really with you. But if you think because your kid's going to Azusa Pacific or Wheaton or, uh, you know, whatever college, Calvin College, if you think that they're getting a good Christian worldview, you're wrong. I mean, there are some colleges that are excellent, like uh, Corbin College up in Salem, Oregon, or Colorado Christian, well, Colorado Christian University. Excellent. Yeah. But if, most of them are not. Well, and think about what it says about our worldview. If we think that we can help our child avoid thinking by going to a Christian college. <laughs> That's true. Right. That's not what we want. Not at all. They can really think well going to a Christian college. In fact, at a Christian college, you actually can be presented with the biblical viewpoint as well as all the various secular viewpoints. You're never going to get that at a secular university. That's an advantage. But we should not think that the purpose of higher education is to protect our kids. The purpose of higher education is to prepare them as thoroughly as we can to be leaders in a world like the one we're living in right now. So we want to have you on again. I think you know people who have a lot to say, and you certainly do, um, I want to start having some other regular people on. And so I'd love for you to be the first guest that we have back again. Oh, man, I'd love to do that. And because uh, there's this so is much really easy. to talk about. Yeah. I mean, is, we're, we're just inviting people into you and I's coffee conversations. I think that's, I think that's what we're doing is because yeah. we have these conversations a lot where we, we can dig in and we can go a hundred different directions with any given comment or question. But man, what if we could develop a community around people who just love to think <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It could be incredible. It'd be a lot of fun. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, man. The website one more time: summit.org. Summit.org, and they can uh, they can go in person in Manitou Springs or in Georgia. Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Lookout Mountain, Georgia. All right, man. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison.
This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.